Ride Report, a podcast from the Master Executive Council of JetBlue Alpha for the Union Pilots of JetBlue. Now from New York, Ride Report. Well, hello once again, and welcome back to another episode of Ride Report. I'm your host, J.R. Hall, Central Air Safety Committee and FOCA Gatekeeper. Today, specifically, what we're going to discuss is something that is not just brand new in theater of operation, but in some more individual complications and some more individual aspects of committees within Central Air Safety and committees as well within JetBlue Alpha. Our very first one blocked out 10 minutes early. Six and a half hours later, the very first JetBlue 321LR touches down in London in the United Kingdom. There is no doubt historically, and suffice to say, should be prideful, all of us seeing our airline grow in this direction, and especially given in the hurdles of late. In comparison, though, sure, the block is similar to an East Coast Transcon to, say, San Francisco or Seattle. And most of us would agree that there are some similar or even maybe more challenges present when we leave Fort Lauderdale for Quito or Lima. But this beginning of our service to London does come with some different factors that we really haven't had to think about much until now, or maybe we have, and we're just glad we left it behind. But we'll dive into some of these aspects and more in this episode. So joining us here in the roundtable, we'll get going on Ride Report, is Central Air Safety Committee Chair once again, Blake Kelly. Blake, how are you? How you doing, JR? Good to be back. Fatigue Subcommittee Chair Sean King. Hi, Sean. Hi, thanks for having me back on. Brand new to the podcast here at Ride Report, our point man for all things ATC and airports. It's ATC Airports Chair Tommy Barone. Tommy, how are you? Oh, it's great to be with you guys. And ACROC, which is, if I get this right, Danny, excellent. If I get it wrong, please feel free to correct me because ACROC, so it's Aircraft Crew Rest Oversight Committee? Is oversight correct? There you go. Ah, you got it. Aircraft Crew Rest Oversight Committee. And you're also in the running for hardest working man in system scheduling, but Danny Oslander. Danny, thanks for joining us today here on Ride Report. Hey, thanks. Happy to be here. So we're going to touch on a bunch of different aspects, but first I'll pass it over to Blake Kelly to, to give us kind of an idea of what exactly are we talking about? Where's the scope of this going? How many different committees does this touch in looking at our operations specifically for London SQ flying? Thanks, JR. I mean, uh, in your intro, you talk about how what really could be different going to London, but there's a lot of new factors that touch a lot of different new things that JetBlue is going to be doing for the very first time. And JetBlue pilots are going to be maybe doing for the first time in their careers, or maybe they've done in a previous career and they're just now doing it for the first time at JetBlue. First, it's Heathrow. It's a new theater of operations, Europe, the United Kingdom. So that's a whole new uh, area of operations that we're going to be in. To get there, we're going to be transversing the NAT high uh, uh, HLA. So we're going to have NAT HLA, which is a new op-spec approval for us to do on Part 121 operations. Need ETOPS to get over there. So we have ETOPS approval. That's going to bring all new procedures for not only flight, but uh, there's going to be dispatch and tech ops requirements that are going to be new to us. And then uh, we're going to be doing it with a, a three-pilot crew augmented operations, right? Sure. So we're going to be having a pilot, a first officer, and now a new position called second officer. That brings a whole new set of procedures and policies with that. And then uh, it's going to bring uh, the requirements for rest facility under augmented operations. So Dan's has been working on that and with the company on a rest facility uh, that's adequate for our pilots. And then, you know, this is this is going to be a whole new type of scheduling of flying. And as we go into deeper into Europe, so fatigue is something we're looking at uh, and how that all comes together. So a lot of 
hands in the center of safety committee have been working on this. Well, let's move it right on over the fatigue aspect of the London SQ flight and how it's planned in. Sean, uh, fatigue and the incorporation of some different aspects of the 117 flight time duty time with the London SQ flying is something that you and your committee have been working on for quite some time. But give us a good overview uh, to what those uh, London SQ pilots should be pulling into focus now for this specific flying. Sure. Yeah. Now they're going to reference table C of part 117, which uh, what we have right now is a class three rest facility. So with those, it's uh, you're either going to have 13, 14 or 15 hours of duty period. But uh, if you are not acclimated uh, on the way back, that gets reduced by 30 minutes. So using our first uh, two flights, uh, they would have had a 13 hour limit on the way over there and 13 and a half on the way back today. Being over there, since we're going more than 60 degrees, longitude brings up the, uh, the threat of acclimation. Uh, acclimated means a condition in which the flight crew member has been in theater for 72 hours or has been given at least 36 consecutive hours free from duty. So we can see if an IROP happens in New York and the plane doesn't make it over there right away, someone could become acclimated to uh, the England time zone. So, sure. And have to work everything off of that, correct? Yep. And then uh, Section 14 of the CBA covers our augmented ops. So um, rest is going to be a little different with these pairings as well. Uh, Following a crossing over there, you're going to have 16 hours of rest that can be reduced to 14. And then coming back, it's going to introduce something that a lot of people probably don't think about, but that 16 hours of rest, but it has to include a physiological night's rest, which means the rest period needs to incorporate the hours of one o'clock to seven o'clock. That really helps you reset your, uh, to get you rested for the going forward. But sure. That is again, also reducible by 14 to 14 hours. And then, uh, in flight, uh, we came up with a worksheet to, uh, come up with the uh, the flight time over there and help uh, people utilize uh, the rest appropriately. So figure out what breaks and who's going in which order. And then uh, they'll get to utilize the uh, the seat back there that uh, Dan's been working on hard. And we'll touch more on the seat here real quick um, with Dan and Acroc. But to to the rotation, there's, is, I mean, you ask me, former 190 guy, now 220, you know, you talk about rest requirement and breaks and rotation, all that stuff. And I would just think it's, you know, everybody best two out of three paper, rock, scissors, shoot on go. But there is a little method to all of that, correct? The, correct. The uh, the pilot doing the landing has to have had the last break. And uh, there's uh, also rules and it's all uh, laid out in the uh, 117 guide that Alpa's put out and uh, our contract about who has to have the break and in a, what order and how long that break has to be. And any other issues, items, hot topics that you think about? Uh, fatigue will work just the same regardless of where you are. If you're fatigued, you know, don't operate the aircraft. Well, let's touch a little bit more on what specifically is available for rest while the aircraft is en route over to London or en route back to uh, soon to be Boston, but right now uh, for Kennedy and bring in uh, ACROC, Dan Oslander. Dan, you're working with uh, Chris Lent as well within the Aircraft Crew Rest Oversight Committee. When it comes to the different aspects of our London SQ flying, what, what are you guys working with on a, on a daily basis? And what's some other guidance that you might be able to provide for our pilots doing this London SQ flying? So uh, the, yeah, the, the committee is actually a, a joint ALPA and company committee. So it's been Chris Lent and I working for the ALPA side of things, as, as well as two members from the uh, safety department working for the company side. And really what we've done is taken a lot of time and care to put together what is going to be, we hope, the best quality rest available on the aircraft uh, for our pilots. The goal being that uh, everybody gets a break and we've put together a, a little chart, a system to help figure out 
how long those breaks should be to make sure we stay in compliance with the regs. And it's based on today's planned flight time. So at the end of the day, everyone gets uh, the, the best rest they can get. We've got two guys in the seats who are uh, well rested and prepared for the approach and landing phase of flight. And, and the goal is really just to, to keep the crew healthy and at a minimal fatigue level uh, all the way through these flights. Actually, I, I just uh, looked, and as we're talking here, actually, the very first Flight 20, the Heathrow back to New York just landed, and they were in the air for, uh, it was six and change going over, but it's uh, it's seven and change coming home, and that, that really gives basically each of the three pilots the opportunity to get two hours in the rest seat, uh, whatever's best for them to relax, uh, either eyes closed or, or uh, reading a book or whatever it is, it works well for them in a comfortable seat in the cabin on the way home. We see some of these beautiful, illustrious crew rest facilities in YouTube videos and everything else. And what we're having uh, for our crew rest facility is a seat that's in the mint cabin, correct? That's correct. What we have uh, for our rest facility is seat 12A, which is the very last seat in mint aircraft left. And we actually spent quite some time selecting that seat. And the reason we went with that last row with row 12 is because the uh, mint cabin has a hard wall bulkhead at the back that's a coat closet. Okay. And so it's something that'll be accessed during boarding. But once everybody's on board and, and everything's put away, we expect there to be very, very little traffic there. Uh, the, the first two rows of the core cabin are exit rows. So those are rows where there will not be children. The, the back of the mint cabin is actually as, as far as you can get from any source of noise. The galley and the lavatory for mint are, are both at the front and all the services for core are at the back of the aircraft. So by, by going back that far, uh, almost to the middle of the airplane, we've got what we expect to be the, the most distanced and least disturbed seat in the whole cabin, and, and we own that seat for crew rest. How is this comparison to other airlines that are doing the same flying as we are? Do they have the same setup? If somebody's experienced, you know, perhaps flying over to London on Delta or United, is, is this somewhat similar? Well, it, it is until you get into the truly long-haul aircraft. Uh, if you look at what most of the U.S. carriers are doing on something uh, even up to like the size of a 767 or an A330, uh, they're, they're pretty much doing the same thing. You know, for example, in Delta's case, they're using one of their Delta One seats, which is their business class seat. It's very comparable to our Mint seats. Uh, they've got a little better curtain setup than we do, which has allowed them to get the Class Two designation for their seat. Uh, that is something that, that JetBlue has said they are continuing to pursue, but we're not there yet. Uh, the difference between Class Three and Class Two is really 30 minutes in most cases as far as rest, so it's not a huge difference. What we have is really kind of a class three plus. We've got all the pieces to make it a class two, which would include a fully lie flat seat and the privacy curtain, except what we don't have yet is the perfect ability for the resting pilot to control the light in that rest seat. And that's because the curtain as we have it right now does not give enough of an overlap along the hard partition of the mint seat and along the sidewall of the aircraft. So there is a better curtain that's in development with Airbus to improve that crew rest seat. And we're hoping to see that coming up here by the end of the year. 
So give us a little bit of the backstory about ACROC coming on, because it has been really, I mean, if you look back in point of time, pretty quick. Mm -hmm. Now we need to make sure that we're following all the regulatory aspects of it. What's some of the work that you guys have have spent in this last year and a half putting this together? Yeah, it, it, it's been really about a year and a half. Uh, we started working in February of 2020. We said, hey, we're going to get together and, and rally every six or eight weeks and work with all these other groups. Part, part of the challenge of what we've done is that there are so many different parts of the operation that interface with the crew rest. We, we've been working with flight ops and standards, but also uh, with in-flight procedures, who are the people that handle how things are done on the airplane, with in-flight standards to make sure that we stay in compliance as we develop these processes, that what we're doing and what we're asking for is compliant from a regulatory perspective. Uh, we're also working with the uh, Aircraft Structures and Engineering Group to work on the, the physical seat itself, the curtain, also with the MEL group within TechOps to ensure that we've got coordination and MELs that ensure that we've still got the best available rest, even when there is a deferral situation with a rest seat. So uh, as we said, the company was really interested in having a class two. And if we can get a better curtain from Airbus that will make it a class two in the future and we upgrade it to a class two, uh, then applying some of these contingencies would change it from a class two to a class three. And so we've addressed that, addressed the operational needs inside the company. The fact that if that happens, crew services has to come into the loop because then there becomes a, a change in the duty day. So there's just all these interfacing pieces that we've had to put together and to make it work as easily as possible for the crew. We've developed what we call the crew rest tool. And that's a, a quick little worksheet where you start with reviewing the, the crew member roles for today's flight. Uh, is it going to be forecasted poor weather conditions at destination, which might need to make it a captain's landing for planning purposes because it may be Cat 2, Cat 3 weather on arrival. Uh, is there a currency situation? Is one of the pilots within 30 days of, of losing landing currency, in which case that pilot may want to fly one or, or even both legs of the round trip. So we, we have this, this worksheet where you start by figuring out who's going to do what Based on that and based on the release, which has the flight time in it, you can determine the break times for each pilot. Bring that over to the second page of the form. The second page is what actually goes to uh, in-flight. And as well as the breaks, you can also get your hands on the mint menu and say, hey, this is what I want to eat today. Fill that out. Say, hey, I want to eat in the rest seat. Or uh, when we take the first break, I want the meals passed up here. So everybody's on the same page. Everybody knows what's going on. One thing we learned is that in-flight is really, really busy. They've got a ton of stuff going on with serving 24 customers. The mint service is even more extensive than what we do on the transcons. Because of this, we're trying to give them as much heads up and as much info as possible so that they can accommodate what we need. So they're not caught by surprise when we say, hey, it's time to do a door opening because we've got to swap pilots right now. Because unlike on the domestic flights, uh, they can't say, hey, can you give us another 15 minutes so we can finish getting the ice cream out? It's uh, a regulatory thing. These breaks are driven by uh, the the regulatory requirements for break times. And so everybody's got to be on the same page to, to work and to manage the breaks. The more everybody knows what to expect and can prepare for the flight, the, the better rested and the more effective uh, we can be as pilots. 
and following the the crew rest tool as we've developed it ensures that we stay in compliance without pilots having to do math in public and figure out brakes by hand. And we just thought a seat was a seat. Right? <laughs> if, if only it was that simple. I know the work that you and Chris have done is is not only super important, but has taken quite a bit of your time. But there's a lot of stuff that goes into choosing that one seat and making it appropriate for crew rest. So the work that you and Chris have done is fantastic. Keep us updated. If uh, if something changes, we move into a class two. If there's something you need to get out. Thanks, Danny, for uh, for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm happy to, uh, to have the chance to share today. And if there are uh, further questions, if pilots who are considering um, bidding it to fly the SQ flying, uh, please feel free to reach out to us. Uh, Chris and I are both in the ALPA directory and you can, uh, you can shoot us an email, ask us a question. We'll, uh, we'll get back to you. Well, let's go into some more of the interesting aspects of running our operations in and out of the UK and, and into London Heathrow. I want to bring in ATC and Airports Chair Tommy Barone. Tommy, you've sat in, in a lot of different meetings with people that have a wealth of knowledge in running aircraft operations back and forth with your partners over at Natgun within the UK and Europe as well. What are some of the intricacies just off the top of your head that we as pilots doing this SQ fly need to need to be prepared for? Because in all honesty, it's it's really crucial, right, that we adhere to a lot of their standard phraseology over there, right? Well, that's correct, JR. You know, we get pretty loose here in the US um, and it's, you know, very acute and very specific what they do over there, the way they talk and what they expect of you. Uh, and you're correct as well, uh, you know, between NATCA here in the U.S., other air carriers, uh, I spoke with a pilot for Virgin Atlantic, uh, as well as, you know, the, the folks over in uh, control in Europe, uh, both in the arrival sectors, local airport at Heathrow, um, and the oceanic controllers. Um, and it all, it all really boils down to what you said, you know, just the exact phraseology and the expectations of the controllers. You know, kind of like the narrative here, if you're, at, if you're unsure, uh, you know, ask. Uh, they really do appreciate that out there. To get into some of the specifics out there, uh, you know, going over, you know, we keep hearing internally, oh, you know, we're going to be so slow on those NAT tracks compared to everybody else. And, and quite honestly, 7779 is pretty common over there in our flight range of uh, 320 to 360. Um, they are going to request the maximum altitude that you can fly as quickly as possible. And I know you go to the box and look at that, but you know any means you can get to determine what your actual maximum altitude will be at that moment. Uh, the planning is key for those controllers going oceanic and flying the the NAT HLAs. Uh, so anything that you can give them that they can use to put you where they need to where they need you to be uh, is going to work out for everybody. So um, be ready to answer questions from air traffic control when they ask you about your performance. Um, you also might have some issues with CPDLC, depending on where you cross over. And that's due to integration with some of the new ATC technology uh, that's being implemented across the globe. Uh, as you approach Heathrow itself, we get into a lot of little things. Uh, you know, Heathrow Director is the approach controller. And for really no reason, that's just what it's been accustomed to. So you'll be, there's a lot of different terms. Um, they do arrival swaps. Kind of it's something similar here, but uh, depending on the flow and noise, they might flip the north and south holding. So you might plan for one arrival and then come on a completely different arrival because they just need to due to volume. Um, and that is, we're used to doing that here, especially in the northeast. So for us, it won't be a big deal. 
But when you prepare your holdings and have your briefings, you might want to prepare both a north and south um, holding option as you approach uh, west operations in Heathrow. Um, very basic speeds uh, that they had mentioned, 220 knots out of the hold, 180 knots on base, and then 160 to a four-mile final. Now, those speeds may be adjusted depending on the situation with the controllers at that time. However, the four-mile final is going to be hard. Um, they do not want you to slow below that four-mile final to whatever final approach mm. they give you, which will give you enough time to be stable as well. And they made that very clear. Um, they do expect these speeds, you know, um, or like I said, a variation depending on the instruction uh, to be here to exactly with zero deviation from that speed. And they're familiar with the aircraft type that we're running in and out of Heathrow and, and soon to be in and out of Gatwick as well. They they handle a vast majority of the wide array of Airbus fleets from the, you know, 18, 19, 20, and now ours with the LR. Exactly. It, it's something that they know how to work with, right? Right. So ground speed mini is the first question. You get, well, how do they know about ground speed mini and how is that going to affect their airspeed um, instructions? And they, they are familiar. Airbus accounts for at least three quarters of their traffic over there in Heathrow. So a lot of the terminology wow. they, they're totally familiar with um, and they do know what we're going to be operating over there. And it's very common. So once you get, again, getting into the Heathrow airspace, a couple of other things, you know, we're used to talking about arriving in there. They don't have descend via like we do, but they will be assigned. They do have altitudes in the arrivals, but you'll be given each altitude as an instruction. Climbing, they do have a lot of adder belows on a, on a few of the uh, SIDs. Those will be negated by climb now instruction to flight level, say, 070 or uh, climb unrestricted. So either way, climb now or climb unrestricted would negate those terms. Um, and don't forget the transition altitude is much lower in London as well. Yeah. You know, another weird thing they might ask you is similar to Chicago with taking off uh, takeoff clearance while an aircraft's still on the runway in front of you. They do the same thing with landing. So it's almost like a visual clearance. So usually once the aircraft in front of you is vacated, they'll clear you to land. But they may say, are you happy to land after? And that means landing after the airplane in front of you, even though that aircraft is still on the ground. Really? So that might be something new to the crews and a little unexpected, but you do take responsibility at that time. The missed approach uh, for 27 left does have a low altitude of 2,000 feet and then climb to three. So you got to be careful there. Okay. You might get instructed to follow the greens. Follow the greens is a term that you'll be following the lighted taxiway to your stand that air traffic control will control stand equates to gate exactly the stand equates to gate where you'll have a, a, a flight information display as well uh, for your gate usually there's nine pages of information there on the back of the 10 on the uh, 10 9 i believe that has a lot of operation guidelines that i'm sure the avg will mirror so but uh, one last thing um you know the real important thing that pilots want to know about is what am i going to get in trouble for right so i'll just hit those real quick wrong taxi routes taxiing the wrong way uh not replying on the radio is a huge one for them out there they are really frustrated with nordo or aircraft that do not reply to a radio call um, again, transition altitude is low, 6,000 feet, a common uh, violation during level loss below 18 there. And not adhering to assigned speeds or slowing early. Uh, kind of the same thing, but slowing early is, is very common here sometimes in some of the airports we go to where you just kind of start setting yourself up. They do not expect that at all, and they do not want you to do that. So they do have their own safety board of investigations. And if there are any issues or violations, they will be handed over to the FAA. And at that time, the FAA will decide what to do with them.
This is why we call him our point man, Tommy Barone, ATC Airports Chair. Fantastic information, tips, tricks, techniques. It, if anybody has a question, want to reach out or or has additional information to provide you, what's a great way to get in touch with ATC and Airports? You can file a PDR or you can email me directly off of our website from the uh, B6 Alpha website under committees, ATC and Airports. Also, if you find something on the ground at Heathrow, you find, uh, you know, maybe unsafe or something you're not understanding as far as signage, that's stuff that we handle as well. So any questions you have for us, um, not only the airspace, but the airport environment at either airport, uh, I will be meeting with the Gatwick folks here next month. Please reach out to us via email and you can find all of our contact and my phone number on the B6 Alpha webpage under ATC and airports. Tommy Barone, thank you so much, man. Huge information. We appreciate you joining us here on Ride Report. Anytime. Well, let's move over to Central Air Safety Chair Blake Kelly. Blake, a lot of stuff that's gone into not only the company preparing for ETOPS, London SQ flying, but as well as within Central Air Safety. What What is making this flying different and what are some of the things that, that you guys in Central Air Safety have been working on during this time frame as well? Well, uh, a big thing we've been looking at is the, the ETOPS procedures. Uh, some pilots might have seen how the, um, uh, you know, what we used to call the oceanic uh, checklist and the FCOM has changed. Uh, that has become one comprehensive checklist, not only to cover what is now ORCA, um, which is oceanic and uh, remote continental operations, um, which is kind of our waters checklist now. And then now that's inserted ETOPS requirements, which are a whole new set of, of requirements for that kind of flying. And then things specific to the NAT HLA for their operations. So that's that's all new stuff that our aircraft design and operations subcommittee has been working with flight standards on as they work to develop that and, uh, you know, try to be in touch with the changes that are coming. And then also comparing that to whether airlines are doing in industry, making sure we're, we're kind of in line with best practices. Uh, the big thing uh, is going to be augmented operations, too. Uh, there's going to be more than one one pilot up there. And um, that creates just different policies to think about in coordination of workload and, and policies around succession of command. Um, that This new second officer position uh, can be staffed by a captain or first officer. So there's some flexibility there of the operation of, of who the second officer will be and how that plays into it. So we're, we're, we're trying to keep in touch with all of that. It's very new for, for JetBlue Alpa, but we have great resources with Alpa National and with, uh, with other carriers that are counterparts to learn as, as we, we embark in this new type of flying. Can, can I ask specifically with regards to ETOPS, the maintenance procedures, if we do encounter an MEL? We do see it in, in seasonal trends, and we're always constantly reminded that when it comes to MELs, we want to ensure that the correct MEL is applied, that we're following the procedure. But this is very, very, very important because some of this equipment can be on MEL, but it may have implications that could in some way, shape, or form prevent us from accomplishing this flight, correct? Correct. And uh, some pilots have already notices, noticed the... Um revision to the MEL that's covering a lot of ETOPS-related MELs where there's different set of procedures if that MEL is going to be operated in ETOPS or it's a no-go item for ETOPS. So review of MELs and and the procedures to make sure they're accurate and reflect on the release is a very important thing with ETOPS. There's a lot of other maintenance procedures too. There's even a pre-departure service check for an ETOPS flight that has to be accomplished 
within a certain time frame before a plane can block out. That's a whole new set of procedures as well with, with the airworthiness of the aircraft. When it comes to the airspace procedure, we know we talked to, to Tommy just a little bit ago about some of the more intricacies and vernacular when it comes to operating over in the UK, but with the NAT and the, the, the HLA airspace, what are some of the concerns that NAT kind of specific flying? Yeah, well, with, with, with Oceanic and that HLA procedures, a lot of it is done via CPDLC, which, which some of our pilots have some experience with doing in, in waters flying in the Caribbean. Um, but uh, it's highly dependent upon in ETOPS and that HLA flying that we'll be doing. And there's a lot of gotchas there with, with applying uh, the CPDLC and understanding those clearances and acting on them appropriately via transmitting. And that's something that's going to be heavily used as a resource. So like Tommy was talking about with the voice vernacular and making sure there's a clear understanding via voice transmissions, CPDLC is even more critical in making sure you understand those clearances and you transmit them correctly. We were hoping to get someone from the training committee on this episode, but I can cover a little bit of the training expectation. Uh, as, as Dan mentioned, you know, there's some pilots still in the training pipeline, waiting training to be an SQ pilot, and some even considering it. Again, just to highlight, first you have to qualify in the seat uh, that you're gonna be an SQ pilot for. So you still go, if you're upgrading to captain or you're transitioning to FO or captain, uh, you have to go through that curriculum to qualify in the seat. And then you also have to complete OE and qualify in that seat and your record's released. And then there's a distance learning component for the ETOPS training piece and uh, two-day ground school and uh, flight simulator sessions. And then uh, you have to do a route check, uh, which is one leg of training and one leg of a line check. Um, again, standards, we're still trying to clarify, um, you know, what's the difference between a route check and a line check. Uh, I think pilots should expect that it's, it's a line check, meaning it's still a Jeopardy event, but they understand this is, uh, it's very unique how they're gonna do the training under an augmented crew pilots should be aware of that as well. A lot of hot topics, obviously, that we've come here to discuss here on Ride Report today, specific to London SQ Flying. Blake, thank you so much again for, for bringing us to speed on the inner workings of not only Central Air Safety with fatigue, ACROC, uh, covering some training aspects of it. Any closing remarks as we close out Ride Report here today? Sure, JR. Uh, just, um, you know, this flying, uh, a lot of work's gone into this to get us flying to, to London by the company and, and uh, by your safety committees. You know, the company's still learning as they uh, launch this flying, and a lot of the stuff we've talked about um, is all subject to change as it gets refined, as we, we learn from uh, our new operation going to, to London. Uh, best thing we can ask, uh, like we always do, regarding anything safety from our pilots flying this, this new type of flying, we'll uh, submit ASAP reports of any safety issues, uh, like Tommy mentioned with ATC or with the operation, and then obviously fatigue is a new element here. So again, anything that causing fatigue, either calling out fatigue or identifying a fatigue hazard to fill out that fatigue hazard report. And then as Dan mentioned, anything about the rest facility, any feedback for your committee, the best thing is to submit a PDR for us so we can uh, utilize that data to help better serve our pilots. Central Air Safety Chair Blake Kelly, thank you so much for joining us here today as we're closing out Ride Report. As always, we want to hear what you liked or maybe didn't. Or give us a heads up of something we may have missed and we'll go and get it for you. JetBlue Pilot Feedback is what drove us to our episode here today. As always, send us a PDR ride report. Tell us what we need to bring to you next. And thank you again for giving us a bit of your time today. Join us right back here again soon on our next episode of Ride Report. Ride Report, a podcast from the Master Executive Council of JetBlue Alpa for the union pilots of JetBlue.